That chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters is the place to be this weekend with UFC 279 on Saturday night and NFL Week 1 action on Sunday. Go to waltersdc.com slash events to register for the UFC 279 watch party. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The 0-1 coming home is hit in the air to deep left center field. Paul on the run, going back, looking up at the wall, and it's gone. Right over the 374 mark in left center field. Number 27 for Hoskins, 2-0 Phillies. The 1-0. Swing and a sky shot to right center and deep. Back goes Palacios looking up at the wall, and it's gone. Number 16 for Rio Muto gives the Phillies an insurance run. They lead 4-2. Nelson sends. He kicks, he delivers. Swing and a chopping ground ball toward the middle. Segura charges in, has it, and steps on second, moving to his right. And the game is over, and the Phillies have taken game one of this three-game series. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, September 10th, 2022, along with MadisonSports.com. Nats insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, who needs timers for pitchers and batters? The Nats and Phillies on Friday night played a nine-inning game that took just two hours, 39 minutes. We will get to the major rule changes in MLB shortly, but the Nats on Friday night did lose a 5-3 loss at the Phillies in game one of a three-game series. Nats fell to a major league worst 49-90, and so this now officially is a 90-loss season for the Nats. The Nats on Friday night did have another double-digit hit game, a 10-hit game, but the Nats also on Friday night drew no walks, as amazingly, there was not a single walk issued in this game. Zero walks the entire game. Mark, you and I have watched a lot of baseball. Many people listening to this podcast have watched a lot of baseball. I don't know that I had ever seen a game in which there were zero walks the entire game. Uh, no, it doesn't come to mind as that happening. And um, I could look it up while we talk here if you want. It was weird. What you saw was both teams had an ultra aggressive offensive approach going right after anything. And if they saw a good first pitch over the plate, they were going to swing at it. Sometimes it was to their benefit. Sometimes it wasn't. And I just couldn't help thinking to myself, though, if you had Patrick Corbin and Noah Syndergaard facing each other, I don't know, four or five years ago, each of them in their peak. You would never see that. These were strikeout guys. These were long at-bats, put-away pitch kind of guys. And for different reasons, Corbin because of his ineffectiveness, Syndergaard because of his injuries over the years. 
they were completely different pitchers tonight where they were looking for early contact. They were pounding the strike zone. And like I said, in some cases it worked. There were, even in Corbin's case, a ton of ground balls and nice plays behind him to get the outs. But there were also a lot of hits along the way. And I don't know if this made it better or worse, but it was definitely a different type of game than we were used to seeing. It's one of the more unique final lines that you'll ever see a pitcher have, what Patrick Corbin had on Friday night. And I guess I'll give Corbin this. He finds creative and different ways to be bad. There is a variety to his bad that I think you have to respect. So he ultimately, for the game, allowed five runs in six and two-thirds innings. He gave up 12 hits, two home runs, a triple, a double, and eight singles. He had just two strikeouts. All of those things are quite bad, but he issued no walks, and he was pitch efficient. He only threw 69 pitches, and he threw 54 strikes versus 15 balls. I was fascinated by this. Five runs in six and two-thirds innings, and yet just 69 pitches and 54 strikes versus 15 balls. He flirted with a four-to-one strike-to-ball ratio. That is really unique. And he did it throwing basically one pitch, the sinker. (laughs) And this is like his last start in New York where he went heavy with that and stayed away from the slider. He did it again. 78% sinkers plus a couple more four-seamers. The total of 81% of his pitches were fastballs or variations of fastballs. And then 19% were sliders. He threw 13 sliders. Did not throw a single changeup the entire night. And Davey Martinez actually kind of spoke out about that afterwards saying he was hoping In that last inning, the third time through, they've seen you. They know what you're going to do. You're being aggressive, throwing sinkers, trying to get them over the plate. Change it up on them. Try to throw their timing off a little bit. And he seemed a little bit perturbed that that wasn't the case. What I'd like to see him do more, especially third time through the order, is throw his changeup. Really strange. I mean, on one hand, you say, hey, that's great. You're throwing strikes. You're being efficient. To get into the seventh inning on fewer than 70 pitches is remarkable. But at the same time, you're giving up a lot of contact. And let's be honest, if not for some spectacular defense behind him, the damage could have been a lot worse against Corbin in this game. No doubt. There was some excellent infield defense by the Nats in this game. It's tough with Corbin because we know the deal. And you see in a game like this, he does not have swing and miss stuff. I mean, that just is not the case. It hasn't been the case for a while now. But a game like this really does highlight that. He's pounding the zone. His control is quite good. And yet he only has the two strikeouts and he gives up. I mean, again, 12 hits in six and two-thirds innings. Corbin's ERA for the season now at 630. The whip is up to 171. But yeah, the defense behind Corbin on Friday night. C.J. Abrams, two tremendous plays in this game. Abrams had another hit too. He was an at-starting shortstop and number six batter. So he was bumped up in the lineup here. One for four with a single. He in the top of the fourth had a two-out single to right field uh, also had a stolen base. But Abrams in the bottom of the third, an impressive play on a Matt Veerling leadoff ground out as Abrams made a nice catch of a grounder up the middle and fired a throw to first base in the opposite direction of his body while running toward right field for the out. We've seen him make that play a few times. He made it in this instance, and this was not a one-hop throw. This was a throw directly to first baseman Joey Manessis. And then Abrams in the bottom of the sixth, an outstanding defensive play on a one-out ground out off the bat of Alec Bohm. Pitch in on the ground toward the hole. It's short. Backhanded diving stop. Abrams pops up and throws. One hop to Manessis. What a play. Imagine that. A first baseman who catches a one hop throw. Good looking backhanded catch there 
by Manessis. But man, the range of C.J. Abrams is something else. We've talked about it, but I think we should highlight it every time it pops up like that. This guy is different at shortstop. He is a difference maker at that position. Yeah, you know, so it's funny. I was talking to somebody from Philadelphia before the game and talking about how much a difference Abrams has made there. And I said, I'm not sure if this is just because we grew so accustomed to every ground ball to shortstop, you're cringing and wondering, are they going to make the play or not? And so now just an average looking shortstop looks great to us, or is he actually that good? Well, I think tonight we got the answer. He is that good. We know he can make the plays up the middle. We've seen him do that and make the off balance throw. We had not seen him do yet was make the spectacular play to his backhand side, hop up on his feet and make a strong one hop throw to first. And that's kind of by design. When you're in that position, you're not getting the ball all the way there in the air, or at least not with any emphasis on it. And so by one hopping it to the first baseman, it actually gets there quicker. And like you said, nice job by Manessis to make the pick. That was as good a play as we've seen from national shortstop in a long time. When you consider the range, the agility, and the arm, all of that together, that was a spectacular play. And it does make you realize they've got something special here, potentially. He's got to be consistent with it. But that was a really special play on a game in which there were several others, and we've seen him make several others. This was a really, really good defensive game. I don't want to overreact, and obviously we need to see a lot more from C.J. Abrams, but whoever you consider to be the best defensive shortstop who the Nats have had since the franchise came here, whether it's Trey Turner, I know Ian Desmond had his run you know, at times being good defensively. He would do this thing where he would get off to bad defensive starts and seasons and then actually end up being halfway decent. I don't think it's a stretch to say that C.J. Abrams, maybe sooner rather than later, could prove himself to be the best everyday defensive shortstop the Nats have had since the franchise came here. I mean, he may well be the most physically gifted in terms of the defense. And again, you know, I'm not trying to overreact to what we've seen over the course of a month here, but I think the potential is there for this guy to be a defensive stud for this team at a premium defensive position for years to come. Well, you see clearly the natural ability that he has. And we've now seen it on a variety of different types of plays. And not just the spectacular ones, but the routine ones too. Remember the the first week, there was maybe a little bit of shakiness, but I think since then he looks much more comfortable and he's quick on some of these six, four threes, which yeah, you'd say, well, they're routine plays. They should be made, but he's getting the ball and getting it out so quickly to feed it to Luis Garcia to make the turn. There's a lot of really good stuff there. So yeah, obviously he's got to show this over the long haul, has to show he can do it consistently. But I would probably say the best defensive shortstop I can think of they've had was Danny Espinosa, who really wasn't a shortstop for long. He was mostly a second baseman and an outstanding one. If C.J. Abrams can keep doing what we've seen here in the last couple of weeks, I think it's safe to say that he could top any of those And certainly, given the idea that he's going to be their shortstop for a long time, I think that could make him the best defensive shortstop they've had as a true regular. I mentioned Manessis at first base on Friday night. So Manessis at first, Luke Voigt was the designated hitter, no Nelson Cruz. Was there a specific reason for no Nelson Cruz? The lineup came out late, and I think that was the reason. He came down with something, possibly a, an eye infection, something like that. I saw him with sunglasses on later on, like trying to protect himself. And I was looking in the dugout late in the game to see, like, is he putting his helmet on? Is he looking like he's taking any swings? And he was just sitting there. So my inclination there was that he was not available. And remember Victor Robles also still banged up with a stiff neck. They were playing with a pretty short bench, I think, in this game. And that's why you saw the alignment they had. And 
you know, a, a lineup that I know we've talked about Nelson Cruz and how he doesn't really merit hitting cleanup for them anymore. But in this game, you had Cesar Hernandez hitting fifth, CJ Abrams hitting sixth, Alec Cole hitting seventh. That's not a very deep lineup. Those aren't the kind of guys you would typically expect to be in those spots. So maybe it wouldn't have been the worst thing in the world if Nelson was available to play, just not hitting cleanup, of course. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Syndergaard to the plate. And a swing and a fly ball left field. Schwarber angling back toward the warning track, moving toward the wall, leaps at the wall, and it's gone. It carries out of here. Schwarber played that like he was going to catch it the entire way, but it lands in the flower bed just beyond the top of the left field wall. It's a solo homer for Alex Call, his third of the year, his second in as many days. Maybe Alex Call should start hitting cleanup for this team the way this guy's been going these last few games. So Call, of course, at the monster game in the Nats 11-6 win at the St. Louis Cardinals on Thursday afternoon. He is the Nats' number nine batter in that game, four for five with five RBI, including a three-run homer and a two-run double. Call on Friday night was the Nats' starting left fielder and number seven batter, three for four with a solo home run and two singles. He in the top of the second had a two-out single to left field. He had an Nats one-run seventh, had a leadoff homer to left field off Noah Syndergaard to cut the Nats' deficit to 4-3. The homer went 342 feet per stat cast. Thank you, Citizens Bank Ballpark. And then call in the top of the ninth, a two-out single to left off former Nats reliever Brad Hand. Nice little run here for Alex Call doing a good job offensively. Well, it's funny. Remember, Davey said after the game the other day, I think he earned himself another spot in the lineup. Well, he did. He took advantage of it. Now he may have earned himself yet another one. It's impressive to see. I have no idea if this guy has it in him to do this on a regular basis. But I'll tell you this. He plays the game hard. We've seen that. He gives you everything he's got. Not being a very physical specimen to look at. He's not a big guy, not a big strapping athletic player, but he gives you everything that he's got and he's getting an opportunity to do some things right now and he's making the most of it. So good for him. Yeah, that home run, know the ballpark well, I suppose. Hit the ball in the air, down the lines in this ballpark and it's going to get out right into the flowers behind the outfield fence. But good for him. At this stage of this season, you'll take whatever you can get from some of these inexperienced players and you want to see more of them. We know what they have in a lot of other veterans right now. We don't know what they have in a lot of these inexperienced players. Let's find out. They got three and a half weeks left. Let's find out what they have in them. 
Yeah, and not that you cheer others being injured, but it feels like guys being hurt, guys being unavailable is kind of the push that Davey has needed to play some people here and to do some things here because Alex Cole has been playing because Victor Robles has this stiff neck. We otherwise were not seeing a lot of Alex Cole. You know, I mentioned Manessis at first base. If not for these recent ailments for Nelson Cruz, you know, the knee and now I guess this eye thing, we're not seeing Manessis much, if at all, at first base. It's good that we're seeing these guys play and see, you know, in Manessis's case, play first base. Like, let's do this. Let's try some different things here as the season goes on. So yeah, good stuff from Alex Cole. More good stuff from Lane Thomas. He continues to be in a nice run. He is settling in more or less now into being the Nats every game number one batter, not unlike what we saw over the final two months of last season. Lane on Friday night was the Nats starting center fielder and number one batter, two for four, RBI triple and a single. He in the top of the third had a one-out first pitch single through the left side of the infield and a stolen base. And he in that Nats two-run fifth had a one-out RBI triple off the top of the left center field wall to cut the Nats deficit to 3-1. I think one of the really promising things about Lane Thomas, and again, it comes back to him being more consistent, but he does have power. Like we saw that last year. We've seen that this year. He's hit some home runs. He can hit doubles. He has a triple on Friday night. When he's on, it's not just about, you know, singles and maybe even walks. It's like, no, he's got some pop in his bat. Yeah. And we saw it late last season from him. You know, he is at times he's a big swing guy and maybe not what you necessarily think of as a traditional leadoff hitter. Strikes out a pretty healthy amount as well. But when he hits the ball, he hits it well. That ball the triple was hit about as far as you can hit a ball in this ballpark and not hit a home run. He hit it in the exact wrong spot for that. But that was a nice piece of hitting on his part. We also saw him steal a base. So that's what you like to see from your leadoff hitter. Yeah, I, you know, we keep getting duped into this idea of, okay, well, Victor Robles is going to be the leadoff hitter in the long term. Okay, well, Lane Thomas is going to be the leadoff hitter. Okay, Cesar Hernandez is going to be the leadoff hitter. It never sticks. <laughs> None of these guys ever hang on to those spots for one reason or another. At this point, you'd like to think that Thomas will stick for the rest of the year. Let's see what he can do there. We talked about this the other day. We're still kind of trying to figure out what is he exactly? Is he an everyday player for this team? Is he a fourth outfielder? Can he hit both sides? Can he play center field? Does he need to be a corner outfielder? The jury's still kind of out, but he is certainly finishing strong. And that's only going to help, I think, as the decision makers have to make their decisions this winter, they're going to have a good kind of lasting impression of him as they head home for the winter. And that's going to help his causes of moving to spring training. I would say knowing what we know right now, and things can change, of course, but I think Lane Thomas on a good team probably is a fourth outfielder just because he's not consistent enough to be what you would call like a quality starting outfielder. But He's good enough to where he can start for you. He can catch fire. We're seeing that. I mean, Lane Thomas now in this month of September has an on-base percentage of 435, a slugging percentage of 538. He, for August, slugged 468. So for about a month and a half now, he's been a pretty good hitter here for the team. The problem is what we saw earlier in the year where he was really bad. Like He was not doing much offensively at all. And one of the reasons we have seen so much of Victor Robles this season is that Lane Thomas hasn't you know, kicked down the door and said, no, I'm going to be an everyday outfielder for you, not Robles. So yeah, I mean, I think, look, if you're a good team, you're doing better than Lane Thomas as your every game leadoff batter. But for this team this season right now, doing a good job. And it's nice to see him on this nice run. Luis Garcia had another key hit for the Nats in this game on Friday night. He in the two-run fifth had a one-out opposite field RBI single to left center field to cut the Nats deficit to 3-2. Luis was back to being the Nats number two batter in this game. He went one for four 
with the RBI single. What did you make of the Luis Garcia 4-3 tag double play in the bottom of the second inning? This is like so Luis Garcia in so many ways. So nobody was out. Luis Garcia takes quite the chance of fielding a grounder off the bat of Jane Segura in running to tag JT Real Muto as he is sliding into second base for the first out. And then Luis fires to first base just in time to get Segura. So the double play was completed, but Luis, instead of flipping the ball to C.J. Abrams at second, decided to uh, take matters into his own hands, tag Real Muto, and then throw to first base to get Segura. So the play worked. It was a risky play, though. I wonder what Davey Martinez thought of the play. What did you think of the play? Risky was the word that came to my mind as well. But I suppose you could look at that and say, if he does the traditional 4-6-3 and flips it to Abrams at second, maybe it does take longer to make the turn and they actually don't get the double play out of it. So it worked out. Probably a little riskier than you want to see. But I will say this about Garcia at second base. He is playing with a much different level of confidence than we saw him at shortstop. And I knew there was going to be a difference in his performance when he moved to the other side of the diamond because we'd seen him play second base in the past. I did not know it was going to be as dramatic a difference. I don't think he's been an average second baseman. I think he's been a very good second baseman over the last several weeks that he's been there. Now, can he keep doing that consistently? Can he avoid the mental mistakes and the sloppiness that we've seen from him in the past? I don't know. We'll see. I think Abrams has helped elevate his game, but I think he is playing with a confidence and a pace and an attention and all those things that make you think he could actually be a pretty special second baseman in the end and not just, oh, well, he's just a hitter who doesn't play the field well. we got to find a spot for him. Let's put him at second because it's less demanding on him. Yeah, I've mentioned this. Luis Garcia for last season at second base was in positive territory for defensive run save. Like he was a good defensive second baseman. So that seems to be a spot. You know, the Nats tried it at shortstop. It didn't work. Okay, fine. But he's back now at second. And that very much feels right. Like this feels like the way to go. Abrams at shortstop, Garcia at second. Since that change was made, I don't think anyone has said, hmm, I don't know about this. Like, no, this has felt right from the get-go. That alignment, those two guys, where they are at. Few other things here with this game on Friday night, and we'll get to the rule changes. I think it's interesting that Ilamaro Vargas had been the every game third baseman. We're seeing a lot more of Cesar Hernandez lately at third base. Now Cesar has been hitting more, so I, you know I suppose that that's the reason Cesar on Friday night, like you said, was an ads number five batter, went one for four with a single. Uh, Vargas did have a pinch hit in this game, top of the ninth, pinch two out single to center field to actually knock Brad Hand out of the game. It's so funny how things don't change. I remember Hand. Hand was actually good for a while with the Nats, but then for uh, another good chunk of time, he was not so good. But it's kind of interesting to me that Vargas supplanted Michael Franco. And I don't want to say that Cesar Hernandez has supplanted Vargas, but lately we have been seeing more of Cesar Hernandez than Ildemaro Vargas. Yeah. So the game started and I thought to myself, oh man, we should have asked Davey what's going on with Vargas. He hasn't been in the lineup for a couple of days. I wonder if he's banged up or something like that. And so I was, you know, watching and then all of a sudden he comes up to pinch hit with the game on the line in the ninth. I'm like, okay, well, I guess he's all right. So I asked Davey about it after the game. and He said, yeah, he just said, we've been playing him every single day for a while now. He's not necessarily used to that. I just wanted to give him a little breather. And yes, Cesar Hernandez has hit well. So you find a way to keep him in the lineup, but there's nothing wrong with Vargas. He's going to be back in there. He hasn't lost his job, anything like that. He's done a very nice job for them. It just happened that he needed a couple of days off because he's played a lot. And it's kind of hard to believe that we're talking about Ildemaro Vargas being such a critical part of their lineup, but he has been. There's no question. It's been Joey Manessis one, Ildemaro Vargas number two, although it's nice to see Abrams and Call, Garcia, Thomas, some other guys contributing here because for a couple of weeks there, it was the Joey and Ildemaro show and not much else. 
Well, I look forward to the day on this podcast, which you and I are discussing a Nationals pennant race in September. For now, we're discussing why is Cesar Hernandez playing over <laughs> Ildemaro Vargas at third base. So I, I don't know if that's rock bottom, but that's not far from rock bottom. I, I, I would say that. We had some roster moves by the Nats on Friday. So the Nats did put Kate Ruiz on the 10-day injured list with a testicular contusion that he suffered in that win at the Cardinals on Thursday afternoon. And the corresponding roster move was the Nats selecting the contract of catcher Israel Pineda from AAA Rochester. If you are a real Nats wonk, you are familiar with Israel Pineda. He has had quite the season at the minor league level. Pineda this season has played at three levels of the Nats minor league system, High A Wilmington, Double A Harrisburg, Triple A Rochester. He over those three levels over exactly 400 plate appearances has an OPS of 783. This is his age 22 season, and that signed him as an international free agent out of Venezuela in July 2016. Interesting now with the organizational hierarchy at catcher with the bad major league seasons that Riley Adams and Tres Barrera have had. If maybe Pineda is emerging as possibly the Nats' number two catcher behind KBIT Ruiz. But with Ruiz, it sounds like he may actually be done for the season. Is that correct? Yeah, it's another one of these. They're not going to officially say it, but you can do the math. So Davey did say, the good news is, while he did spend the night in St. Louis, they wanted to keep him for observation, didn't feel like he could travel yet. He was scheduled to fly to Philadelphia on Friday, join the team, meet up with them at the hotel. But the doctors told him three weeks, no strenuous activity. Okay, there's less than four weeks to go in the season. Do the math. Are they going to bring him back at that point just for a couple of games when he hasn't had any chance to you know, rehab or get himself ready? No, probably not. So I think this is unfortunately a very abrupt end to his season. Now, as far as what that means the rest of the way, I do think it opens the door here for all three of those guys to make a case. And I think we're going to see all three of them in various capacities here. Riley Adams got the start in this one. Tres Pereira is going to get his starts. I would imagine that Pineda will get the fewest of them. And let's just keep this in mind. While he had an excellent season in the minor leagues, he burst up through the system most of the year at high single A, did well at double A to the point that they actually promoted him to triple A just a week ago, only played six games there, and they're already calling up. Now, that's calling him up out of necessity. I think in the bigger picture, they would not view him as a big league catcher yet. But he is a guy they've liked for a long time. He hits for power. He has a good arm, I'm told. I think still needs to learn a lot about game calling and all that kind of stuff and the kind of things you would expect at AAA. So he'll get a chance to play somewhat here. But I think the next three and a half weeks are really more about Adams versus Barrera trying to position themselves to be the number two next year. And then Pineda may be starting to plant the seed in some people's minds of what he could be. But I'd be surprised, especially such a young guy and knowing he'd be the backup if they would want to put him in the big leagues permanently for that. I think they'd rather view him as like an everyday guy at AAA next year because he may actually have a future. So the Nats have called up Tres Barrera with the expansion of September rosters. He has not played since that happened. Tres Barrera has not played in a major league game since August 21st. I brought this up recently. It's not on the list of like the most prominent Nationals problems this season but the lack of production at catcher behind Kbert Ruiz really has stood out. I mean, neither Adams nor Barrera has done much of anything offensively this season at the major league level. Adams now, this year at the major league level, has an OPS of 561. 
Barrera this year at the major league level has an OPS of 441. And the Nats have like flip-flopped each guy as a number two catcher over the course of the season because each guy hasn't hit. So they say, well, let's try the other guy. Well, they bring up the other guy. Well, he doesn't hit. So they go back to the original guy. And like neither guy has come through off each guy having been an offensive positive last season. So it'll be interesting to see how they perform. You know, I'm certainly not happy Kepa Ruiz is injured, especially with this ailment that he now has. But I tell you, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to get more of an idea here of what you have in Adams and Barrera down the stretch. And with Kebert Ruiz, I would imagine he would have wanted to end his season strong. But, you know, in terms of the physical toll that you take as a catcher, again, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world in a lost season for a young catcher to not have unnecessary mileage added onto his body. You know, I know that he wants to catch every day. I know that that's really good for him. If you think about it like this, as a catcher, you probably only have so many games as a catcher. Like your body can probably only take so many games. Now, what that number is, you don't know. But why waste those bullets in a lost season like this? The fact that he might be out for the rest of the year, it's not good news, but I think there is a silver lining to that. And you can get a better sense on what you have in Adams and Barrera. Yeah, I mean, look, Kbert doesn't have anything else he needs to prove this year. He's proven plenty. He is the future and he's going to be their number one catcher and they believe a very good one for a long time. So yeah, not the end of the world in that standpoint from an evaluation standpoint and certainly not from his physical standpoint. Get the rest and get ready for next year. Yeah, they do need to give those other guys more playing time. Maybe that does make a difference when they're not catching once or twice a week, but now you know maybe three times a week each. Could that actually allow for either of them to start to produce with any regularity because they really haven't. Adams had a nice double in this game off the wall. He also came up with the game on the line in the bottom of the ninth. And, you know, tough spot. You're two outs down to your last out. You're trailing by two runs. It's not like it's a a slam dunk you're going to deliver there, but would have been nice if he could have. That would have been a big feather in his cap. But, you know, you talk about rock bottom as we're debating Cesar Hernandez or Ildemaro Vargas at third base. Tress Barrera versus Riley Adams, backup catcher. I mean, the good news is here, they appear to have a number one catcher for a long time. That's something that has not been the case here. It's certainly not a homegrown young guy. That's good. Yes, you want to have a reliable number two, but if Cabert Ruiz continues to be the guy they believe he is, it's not going to be the end of the world if they don't have a big time number two catcher. Well, and they have some youth at catcher for years, right? Matt Wieters and Kurt Suzuki and Jan Gomes. And, you know, Suzuki and Gomes did some really good things for the team. But it's nice to have youth and potential at catcher these days for the Nats. Uh, Also for the Nats, from a roster transaction standpoint on Friday, they did designate reliever Jake McGee for assignment. Recall Jordan Weems from AAA Rochester. The Jake McGee experiment did not work out. The Nats on August 9th claimed him of outright waivers from the Milwaukee Brewers. McGee for the Nats over 12 appearances, 10 innings, 7 earned runs. Only one reliever pitched for the Nats on Friday night. Erasmo Ramirez, one and a third scoreless innings, two strikeouts. His ERA for this season now is 278 over 74 and a third major league innings. He has thrown by far the most innings of any Nats reliever this season, if you're not counting Paolo Espino, which I'm not because he has started so many games. It's a funny thing. When we talk Nats relievers, we spent so much time on Kyle Finnegan and Tanner Rainey and Hunter Harvey and Carl Edwards Jr. and maybe even some other people. Erasmo Ramirez has been the Nats' best relief pitcher this season. Am I wrong in saying that? You're not wrong in saying that. And there's maybe an argument to make that he's been the Nationals' best pitcher, period, 
this year. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we who cover the team every day are going to be voting on some awards. Who's the player of the year? Who's the pitcher of the year? And I can't believe I'm saying it, but Erasmo Ramirez may have as strong case as anybody to be the pitcher of the year. Uh, you can make case for Finnegan, but we've talked about the inconsistency there. At his best, he's been very good, but there have been some notable meltdowns. You know, the role that he's in, it's not, it's a bit of a thankless role at times, but he's also pitched some big, important innings. He's started some games in emergencies. He's giving them length. He's done a really nice job for a guy who was brought in last second spring training minor league deal. He's 32 years old. He's been around the block and he's probably having the best season of his career, which has spanned, I think, a decade now. So props to him. Erasmo has been fantastic for them and every pitching staff needs a guy like that. That was sort of Paolo Espino guy before he moved into the rotation. Erasmo has taken on that role as the do everything guy and maybe we need to come up with a nickname for him now. Well, you know, you can certainly make the joke of if Erasmo Ramirez is your pitcher of the year, you're having problems. But I would say this, if he finishes this season as he may well finish this season, 80 plus innings of relief, ERA under three, that's rare. Look up in Major League Baseball how many guys do that over the course of a season. 80 plus innings of relief, ERA under three, that's real value right there. there were, I looked up the other day, there's only two others this year with 70 innings and an ERA under three. One of them's Keegan Aiken of the uh, Orioles. The other one is Barria of the Angels. So, I mean, it's rare to have that many innings from any reliever, but to do it with a low ERA like that, absolutely. That is a special ability to do that kind of thing. It's not easy to be that successful throwing that many innings out of a bullpen. All right. Change is coming to Major League Baseball in 2023. MLB's Joint Competition Committee on Friday voted in favor of three major rule changes for the 2023 season. If you're wondering what the heck is the Joint Competition Committee, the Joint Competition Committee is a voting body consisting of four active players, six members appointed by MLB, and one umpire. The Joint Competition Committee was created as part of the uh, new collective bargaining agreement. So the three major rule changes are, number one, timers. Beginning with next season, there will be a 30-second timer between batters, a 15-second timer between pitches with the bases empty, and a 20-second timer between pitches with at least one runner on base. So a timer for a batter, a timer for pitchers, depending on the situation on the base pass. The second major rule change, defensive shift limits. Beginning with the 2023 season, a defensive team must have a minimum of four players on the infield with at least two infielders completely on each side of second base. There are more to these things, but this is kind of the basics of these first two major rule changes. And then rule change number three, or I guess it's equipment change number one, Bigger bases, beginning with next season, first base, second base, and third base, which traditionally have uh, each been 15 inches square, will be 18 inches square. Home plate will be unchanged. And the idea with this is that bigger bases give players more room to operate, and uh, you'll also avoid collisions. So, I don't, you know, the bigger bases thing, I don't know that there's a ton to say about that, but we certainly can talk about it. But the big things, obviously, are the timers and the defensive shift limits. So I'll let you have the first crack at this. Uh, what do you think about all of this? Well, real quick on the bigger bases, it sounds like just an afterthought. I could have a very big impact. Stolen bases. This sounds silly, but it's going to decrease the space between the bases by like four or five inches, I think. And you think about how many bang, bang, close plays there are on stolen bases. This is going to encourage more guys to run. And along with that, they're limiting the number of pickoff throws that you can make. Two times is the limit. 
to pick off. If you throw over a third time, you have to throw him out or else he automatically gets the base. All of this is going to encourage more running. I think that's a good thing. It's exciting. Stolen bases are fun. All of these things that they're doing here, I think, are designed to create more action in the game, more base running, more balls in play, more, you know, potential for both great defensive plays, but also more hits and running around the bases, all that kind of stuff. The things that we think of as action in baseball. I think the pitch clock for a long time, I was adamantly opposed to it. It was like, we don't need that. This sport's the one without a clock. They need to learn how to adjust. They never did. So you know what? I'm all for it now. Everything I've heard about it in the minor leagues, yeah, there are going to be complaints about it in spring training and the first couple weeks of the season, and then they're going to forget about it. Just like the sticky stuff last year. When's the last time that came up? Anybody talk about that? It doesn't come up at all anymore. They're going to complain about it and they're going to adjust. It's going to be fine. It's going to make a major difference on the pace of play and the time of game. I am sure of that. The shifting one is the one I'm a little more hesitant with. I've always been of that belief of don't go telling teams where they can position guys in the field. It's up to the hitter to find the holes and where to hit them. They don't do that. They don't do that both because it's really difficult against today's pitchers to do that, but also the money isn't there for them. There's not enough incentive to just hit a weak grounder through the left side open hole of the infield and get your single. That's not where it is. It's in power and walks and everything else. So the state of the game the last couple of years, I've noticed it. I'm sure you've noticed it too. It's a lot less action, a lot fewer balls in play, and a lot more balls off the bat. You say, wow, that looks like a hit. No, wait, it's hit directly at its shifted infielder. So I'm willing to give this one a try to see what it would do. I think I support the idea of keeping two infielders on each side of the field. I think I like that. I would maybe see if you could still let one of them play deep. Like you got to stay on the dirt now. I don't know if it's the end of the world to let them play in shallow right field, understanding that there's going to be a hole somewhere that is still available to you. So I want to see how that one plays out, but I get what they're doing. And I think the intent here is good. And I hope it does produce a, a more entertaining quality of baseball than we've seen the last few years. Yeah, I would say I am a major yay on the timers. I think this is great news. I think this is long overdue news. I think the lengths of games have become just really tough. I think there's a discussion to be had of if you're major league baseball, do you really count on people watching every inning of every game? Or is it more so that you're okay with people consuming, you know, two, three, four innings of each game, you know, watching their highlights on MLB.com, that kind of a thing? Because if that's your actual view of things, then I guess you could say that the length of games doesn't matter as much because, you know, you're only counting on people to watch a few innings of each game anyway, because it is kind of unrealistic to think in 2022 that someone's going to watch all 162 games of a team. But I think it's always risky to say, well, we can let people skip chunks of most games. Like you want to make it so that if someone wants to watch the entirety of a game, it is consumable. And right now it really is not consumable. I mean, it's funny that this Nats game on Friday night went two hours, 39 minutes. The win on Thursday afternoon at the Cardinals went three hours, 57 minutes. That's unacceptable for a nine inning game, three hours, 57 minutes. And you know, I know some people will say like what you said, well, there's no clock. That's the beauty of baseball. If you feel that way, great. I'm not going to tell anyone how to feel about how you enjoy the sport, but you're in the minority. Like if you're baseball and you're trying to grow the game and appeal to a younger demographic, you don't do that by having regular season games that routinely are three plus hours. That's not good. And most people do not have the time to spend watching three plus hour baseball games 
over 162 games. So I'm very glad about the timers. I'm with you too. You will hear complaints because baseball players love to complain. And then just like the sticky stuff, nobody talks about it five minutes later. You know, that sticky stuff thing really is instructive. That first night and the tantrum that Max Scherzer threw. Max held his arms out, held his glove out, then took his hat off. And then started to walk away when Alfonso Marquez still had his glove. All I can think of, the guy who gets pulled out of the TSA line at the airport and is just steamed. He didn't say a word. That duped a lot of people, including a lot of people in the media who said, oh, this is the end of the world. This is the ruination of baseball. They're doing this and that. And then you never heard about the sticky stuff again. So I think it's pretty funny to look back on that. And I think you'll have something similar with this. The problem to me with the defensive shift limits is... It feels like a get-out-of-jail-free card for batters, where now you're saying to defenses, you can only do this because it's too hard for hitters. And I don't like that. And I think that there is a really interesting strategy in how a team positions its defensive players. You know, one of the things that comes up a lot in the NFL is, okay, you have 11 guys on defense. What do you do? Do you go, you know, with a 4-3 base alignment? Do you go 3-4? Now you see a lot of teams... You know, they're playing nickel a ton. So it's like you go with four defensive linemen and you have five defensive backs, maybe six defensive backs. But in other words, part of the conversation is you have 11 guys. How do you mix and match? Who do you play? Where do you play them? I think that's interesting. I think that strategy talk is interesting. I think you could have that in baseball. I don't think that you have enough of that in baseball. And I actually put a lot of this on telecasts of baseball games. I personally don't think that telecasts do a good enough job of highlighting defensive alignments. And when teams are in shifts telling you who is where and why, it's always after the fact, well, he hit the ball into the shift or, you know, the shift took away the hit or, well, there's a hit because of the shift because he hit the ball where nobody was. It's always, it's never like pre-play. Maybe there's a graphic in a corner or something like that. But I think you could make it more like a part of the game instead of the way it is now, which is, oh, by the way, yeah, they were in some shift. And you say, well, who was where? Well, I don't know. No, No one really says it. So I think that that's part, I think there's like a cultural thing here, especially from a lot of ex-players who don't seem to be very welcoming of the shift. So I think that that's an issue and I'd like to see them keep the shift. I, I don't like this where you limit what teams can do defensively, but we'll see. I mean, I guess, you know, in practice, maybe this ends up being good. So I'm, I'm open-minded enough to at least concede that, but I'm never a fan of you tell teams to stop doing something because it makes the game too hard. You know, like I don't, I don't, I don't. I think that's kind of a dangerous precedent to set. Yeah, or it's also like a backlash to teams having gotten too smart. You know, the reason that this has happened is because teams have figured it out. They have the information now to say, hey, here are the best places to position our fielders to give us a best chance of getting this guy out. And they didn't necessarily have that in the past. So it's almost like a penalty to teams who got smart enough to do this. So philosophically, I don't like it. But I will say aesthetically, I've really noticed it the last few years in baseball. It's just way fewer hits, way less action. And there are a few things more frustrating than a guy just smokes a ball, 105 miles an hour, hits it on the screws. And for 100 years, like that's a hit. And in this case... No, it's not. And not because it's a great defensive play, but just the guy was in the right spot, right place, right time. Now, like I said, I wanted to believe forever that hitters would learn how to avoid that. If they're going to play everybody over here, well, I'm going to hit the ball on the other side of the field. They don't do it. It has not been incentivized enough. It's not as easy as it sounds. So I think it's worth it to try to do something to generate more action. You know, pace of play helps. 
but more balls in play helps more base runners, more potential outs on the bases, throws to bases. I think that is ultimately better for how the sport looks. Just because teams have gotten smarter, just because they are better at doing certain things does not necessarily make it as good of a product. And I think we have to remember that. Like, Kudos to everybody who's figured out how to win games better, but that doesn't mean it's always so much fun to watch. And I think there's a balance that they've got to find, and this is a step in that direction. Yeah, I understand that. I don't know. It's just like, okay, one of the reasons it can be harder to hit is because guys throw so hard. So like, you would never say, well, cap the velocity. You're not, you're not allowed to throw more than 95 miles per hour. Nobody would ever say that because you'd say, well, that, that's, that's competitively, that sounds ridiculous. And, you know, I don't know that banning shifts is that much of a departure from that. I may be in the minority. The lack of balls in play, I don't think is nearly as big of an issue as the length of games. I think if the games are shorter, the lack of balls in play becomes more digestible. And there's something specific, too, about this defensive shift limit that I really don't like. So infielders may not switch sides. So in other words, a team can't reposition its best defender on the side of the infield that a batter is more likely to hit the ball to. So, you know, in the Nats case, let's say you want to put C.J. Abrams on the right side of the infield for a specific batter. You're not allowed to do that. I don't like that. You should be allowed to do that. You should be allowed to move people around. And, you know, again, it's like you're handcuffing defenses and you're taking away part of the strategy of the game. You're taking away... In a lot of ways, honestly, part of the creativity of the game. And, you know, I just think something is lost when you do that. Yeah. One other thing that we'll have to see how it works in practice. Let's keep in mind that they could take it as far as you can. Now, let's say lefty hitter who, you know, pulls the ball. Okay, you've got your first baseman probably at his normal position. Second baseman can be shaded over to the hole and standing right on the back line of the dirt. So he's not, you know, in shallow right field, but he is shifted from where he would normally play and your shortstop can stand as far as I understand almost directly behind second base just one step to the side and your third baseman can be all the way in the hole so that's not a straight up defensive alignment it is quote unquote shifted it's just not dramatically and it's not three guys on one side of the field and it's not an infielder in the outfield so I want to see how teams try to get around it and position themselves as best they can you could also have and I don't know Again, the specifics of it, but could your shortstop be standing just beyond second base and at some point as the pitcher is winding up, can he start running to the other side and now actually be on the first base side? I don't know. I don't know how that works if you're going to be able to do that or not. So I'm sure that there are some teams out there, imagine Buck Showalter being one of them, trying to figure out how can we exploit this and actually take advantage of it. And like, what are you going to have? Some imaginary line on the infield that like divides where exactly guys can be like what if you do have people trying to be right up to the absolute border of where you're supposed to be like how do you know that he's not a step far beyond where he can be or you know what I mean like I don't know there's gonna be a lot of judgment calls with that but it is interesting there's no doubt about that and I do applaud MLB especially with the pitch clocks you know the timers whatever you want to say for finally doing this. I mean, I think that this is late, but at least you're doing this. I know it wasn't easy with the Players Association, and I know a lot of people don't like Rob Manfred. One thing I do respect about him is that he is open to change, and he is open to trying to make the game better, and he's not stuck on this thing of, well, we've done things a certain way for so long, and so that means that that's the right way to do things. I think you have to be open to adjusting things, and I think especially with the length of games, the fact that he's open to something as pretty dramatic as having timers for batters and pitchers, 
actually think it's a good thing. And I do applaud Manfred for that. Yeah, I think there's nothing wrong with the ideas and willingness to change the sport as he has done. I think he has not done a great job in the messaging of it and in the communication of things and the building of relationships, particularly when it comes to the players and with fans for that matter. But to just say, well, this is the way we've always done it, so we're not going to change, it's not an acceptable answer in 2022. So I do applaud them for trying something. But I would also say this, and we don't see this a lot. You try this, you do something different. If it doesn't work, be willing to go back or be willing to adjust and say, nah, you know what? Maybe that shift thing wasn't really the right thing to do. It looks off. It's not having the desired result. So we're going to modify that and not just say, well, we can't go back to what we used to be you know, or anything like that. The pitch clock, what I'd be interested with this would be this. I'll bet after a while, and I don't know if it's within one season, two seasons, three seasons, whatever it is. I'll bet you it gets to a point that pitchers just naturally are throwing the ball in 15 to 20 seconds. And I'll bet they could even get away with turning the clock off and they would just already be at a faster pace because they're going to be used to it now. So that'll be interesting to see over time. Yeah. And the other thing is, is all of this going to be strictly adhered to in terms of enforcement? Because we years ago had the one foot in the batter's box rule and umpires have done, I think, a poor job of enforcing that. And so, you know, you can have these rules, but if they're not enforced, then they don't really mean much. So I think it's imperative that these things are stuck to. And if there's a violation of, say, a pitch clock, that you go ahead and award the automatic ball. If there's a violation of the batter clock, that you go ahead and award the automatic strike. It's not going to feel good doing that, and nobody's going to be happy about that, but you really do have to set the precedent of this is the new way, and you either get on board or, you know, you get out. Like, this is how it is now. So I think that that's a big deal because MLB for years has talked about speeding things up and has done various things to, quote, unquote, try to speed things up, but nothing ever sticks. And I think part of it is there isn't, yes, there's buy-in from the players, but you as a league you have got to like be almost you know like a disciplinarian with this and say, this is how it is. This is what we're doing. And so I think that that's a key part of this too. Well, and I think that's why they finally took this step because there were things along the way, suggestions, recommendations. Hey, we're going to start calling this. Hey, you've got to do that. And then they wouldn't stick with it. Now you've literally got a clock on the field counting down and umpires are going to be told you have to adhere to it and players aren't going to like it. And fans are not going to like it at times when it's costing their team. But you know what? It'll make everybody adjust in a hurry as soon as it does come back to haunt a team. As George Costanza once said to Jerry Seinfeld, you're not in the mood, you get in the mood. That's the messaging from MLB to the players with the timers. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast Nats chat podcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the Nats chat podcast, hit up Tim Shover's Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself or someone who you know a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And before we say goodbye, we want to send a congratulations to the voice of the AAA Rochester Red Wings and Nats Chat contributor Josh Wetzel, who will be on the radio call of Nats Phillies on Saturday, getting the call up for the game. Congratulations, Josh. Thank you to him for his uh, involvement with the podcast. And thank you for listening to the Nats Chat Podcast. This is huge! I know. All right, okay, let's go. Details. Nah, I can't give details. You what? I can't give details. No details? I'm not in the mood. You ask me here to have lunch, tell me you slept with Elaine, 
and then say you're not in the mood for details. Now, you listen to me. I want details, and I want them right now. I don't have a job. I have no place to go. You're not in the mood? Well, you get in the mood!